Well, good morning and welcome everyone. This is your host, James Orr, and this is the second live class we've done for the servingrealestateinvestors.com series that I'm doing for professionals who are looking to serve real estate investors in some way. And today we're going to cover something that is sort of the baseline for a lot of the content and classes and discussions and things to come. And that is, we're going to go over all the different types of real estate investors, because I think that there are many different ones, different focuses you can have. You can cater to all of them, or you can kind of niche down and take one core group or two core groups that you may want to work on or work with, serve. And uh, so we'll go over like all the different ones that we have. I, I don't think I'm going to spend a ridiculous amount of time today digging into like the why of, you know, why work with specifically nomads or something else. I might mention like one or two things, but I think there are, there's enough meat to cover like why you should work with or not work with, you know, pros and cons of working with certain types of real estate investors that we'll cover in independent classes on that particular type. So for example, I'll do a class on fix and flip real estate investors as an example. And we'll talk about like, you know, all the different things you can do and why you might want to work with fix and flip guys. But really today, I'd like to just run through what the different types are and maybe mention one or two things related to uh, you know, why you might want to work with them and kind of what you might want to do working with them and, and how it might work. So, all right, so let's jump right in because there's a lot to cover and I want to keep these to a reasonable, you know, 15 minutes to 25 minutes in time so that they're bite-sized. And I have a tendency to go long. So I'm going to try to respect your time and do that. So uh, the list of types of real estate investors, number one, and they're in alphabetical order. Um, in case you're wondering, it's not like this is a, a priority list or I prefer this one over another. Um, in fact, you'll, you'll hear my preferences over time but I'm trying not to be biased so that, you know, if you have a preference for working with one that I don't, that's fine. All right. So the buy, rehab, rent, refi, and repeat guys, the Burr real estate investors, the folks that they want to buy a property at a really big discount so that they can fix it up, put a tenant in there, then refinance the property. You know, it used to be six months. Now it's a year, but you refinance the property after a year and be able to pull all or a lot of their money out. So they're leaving minimal amount in the deal and they're capturing some equity on the way in, in theory, at least. That's the idea. So there's these folks that they want to go and they want to buy these deeply discounted properties. In some markets, this is a great strategy, right? If you if you live in a market where you can find a bunch of deeply discounted properties, then this is a strategy you may want to cater to because it's a very popular strategy. And if you go look at the analysis I've done when we do modeling for the burst strategy, the burst strategy is a great strategy if you can do it in your marketplace. I think a lot of folks will have a hard time doing this in their marketplace. Uh, not every market is well suited for buying deeply discounted properties, doing work on them and being able to you know, kind of get out of there with all their money. So the burr guys, um, the nice thing about the burr guys is they tend to get some or all of their capital back so that they can go and you know, do another property very quickly. Um, and they tend to want to acquire a bunch of properties. You don't typically just do one burr, although you, you can, but the, the idea is that you do more of them. That's why you're trying to pull your money back out to do these deals. So that's one group, the, the kind of burr group of real estate investors. Then there's the traditional landlord, long-term buy and hold type guys, although it doesn't have to be long-term. I do have short-term rentals on here as a second group, but there can be guys that are doing more of a, 
you know, month to month, or maybe they're renting out by the bedroom. Maybe they're doing like, you know, housing, um, like, you know, a, a short-term housing solution. But these guys are typically guys that are coming in. Um, a lot of them are going to try to put, you know, 20% down, 25% down. And there's some incentives for doing the 25% down. And they're going to want to buy long-term buy and hold rental properties to kind of build wealth over time. This tends not to be the get rich quick crowd of real estate investors. And I use that kind of in quotes because you see that more often in other groups, but the buy and hold guys typically are going to go look to buy a property, hold it for long-term wealth building. You know, the, the kind of four areas of returns plus reserves, you know, the return from appreciation, they're looking to have their properties go up in value over time. Um, you know, they're looking for cash flow on the property ultimately. And sometimes they're willing to buy properties, depending on the market, they're willing to buy properties where they're not going to put enough down to have really good cash flow up front, especially with high interest rates and rents dragging a little bit as of right now. Um, they're also looking for a little bit of debt pay down. And then they're looking for the tax benefits of owning these rental properties long-term. So the four areas of return that I typically talk about, we talk about return quadrants. Those are what those are, those guys, the, the uh, buy and hold long-term real estate investors are typically looking for. Then you've got the whole group that are wanting to do fix and flip. And what tends to happen, and it's not universally true, but what tends to happen is you get a lot of folks that they want to do fix and flip because they believe that they need to do fix and flips in order to generate the money for down payments. Another common kind of subgroup of fix and flip are people that are handy and they're looking for doing fix and flips instead of their job. So they want to go find a property that they can fix and flip so that they don't have to go work for someone else to kind of do that. Um, so these guys, if you have them in your marketplace, they can be good repeat customers. They can be good customers that are doing, you know, one or two or three transactions a year, sometimes more than that. I used to cater to fix and flips. It used to be one of my niches that I really, really focused on. Um, I primarily focus on more buy and hold, house hacking, nomad guys, um, you know, some partnership sort of stuff there. But those tend to be the more core groups that I focused on later in my kind of brokerage career. Um, there was a period of time when I really started focusing on uh, local brokerage that I tend to focus in on fix and flip guys very specifically. I used to do very specific things and created tools and resources for fix and flip guys. And you don't need a lot of fix and flip clients to do a good number of transactions a year. Uh, because they're usually repeating the process. The challenge is finding ones that are willing to work with you, not exclusively, right? Like you, you don't want to like lock them in if, in case they find a deal somewhere else, but you want you want to be the main source of their deals. Um, otherwise, they tend to you know go wherever someone is going to give them a deal. That that tends to be a process with the the fix and flip guys in particular. Although there's exceptions to that. I don't want to hyper generalize, um, but I think that's. That can be true with fix flip guys. Uh, so fix flip guys, they're you know buying properties. You usually have to get them at a deep discount and be able to be able to add value in some form. And there's all sorts of variations in there uh, from the fix and flip. You know, there's um, you know like the the guys that want to do pop tops. There's guys that want to do scrapes. There's guys that they want to only do um, really light rehab. There's guys that want to do like the ugliest, messiest deeply discounted property that they could possibly find. Um, there's guys that want to do really inexpensive properties because they want to use their own money and they're limited in what they can do. So there's all sorts of variations to them. And we'll talk about those in detail as we get through. Uh, next group is the guys that are doing house hacking. Uh, I, I like these I like these groups of real estate investors personally, but you may, may choose to work with a different group. But house hackers are guys that are willing to move into a property and either get roommates, especially if you're buying a single family home, or these are the folks that want to buy like a duplex 
or a triplex or a fourplex, usually with, you know, like three and a half percent down or VA financing where they can go buy these duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. They live in one of the units and then they rent out the other, other units. And a lot of the house hackers will combine like the nomad strategy where they're doing house hacking, but then they serially buy additional properties and kind of repeat the process as they go. And so you'll see some of that coming in as well. We talk about nomad. Then all the guys that want to do like lease options and lease options really gets divided in my head into two separate groups. There's the folks that want to acquire properties using lease options. So they want to find people where they can rent the property for a period of time, a year or two or three or more. And then they want to have the option to be able to buy the property uh, from the seller a year or two or three or four down the road at some ideally pre-agreed upon fixed price. So there's the groups that want to acquire properties that way. And then there's a the group that want to acquire properties, sometimes very traditionally, and then they want to offer the properties on a lease option with an exit. So they'll go buy a traditional single family home. Um, they'll, they'll buy it with traditional financing. Then they will immediately put a tenant buyer in the property, someone who's wanting to lease and option the property from them or lease and purchase the property from them a year or two or three down the road to do that. And I think I prefer working more with the guys that are doing the lease with the option on their exit rather than the guys that are trying to acquire with a lease or an option up front. And part of the reason why is, is a little trickier to figure out your compensation. And in some markets, the uh, real estate commission and or laws um, kind of limit what you can do as far as helping people acquire properties on lease options. Uh, your hands are definitely tied in some markets as to what you can do with those. So they tend to be a little bit trickier to, to kind of work through. I think the lease option on the exit, you're helping them acquire property, sometimes very traditionally, you know, they're putting 20, 25% down, trying to buy a rental property, but then they're going and hiring the attorney to go prepare their paperwork to do the lease option. They're doing all the marketing in order to find their tenant or tenant buyer, and they're doing that. And I think there are things we can do to serve those folks, um, but it is, it's easier, in my opinion, to do the ones where you're exiting on a lease option than it is where the people that are acquiring. Although there are some people that they focus specifically on the lease options acquisition stuff as well. Uh, Nomad, this is probably my favorite strategy. It's folks that are usually buying properties as an owner-occupant, moving into the property to fulfill the obligations of the lender so they don't commit loan fraud. They're getting an owner-occupant loan. They're buying a property. They're moving in. They're living in the property for at least a year. That's the requirement of the lender. As of right now, if the lender changes the requirements, we'll change the strategy. But basically, they live there for at least a year. And then at the end of the year, or whenever they've saved up their next 5% down to buy their next property, they convert the property they were living into into a rental. They go buy their next property with 5% down. They move into that one. They live in that one for a year. And then they repeat this process until they acquire as many rentals as they want. There are a whole bunch of advantages. I'm sure I will do entire classes on why I love working with Nomad clients, uh, but a, a couple of just the off the top reasons why if you're serving real estate investors, you know, specifically as an agent or lender, where these are great clients to have because with, imagine you have a client with a single 20% down payment and they were, they're interested in getting involved in rental properties and they are looking to buy a rental property. If they only have one 20% down payment and they're doing traditional buy and hold, they can buy one property and you can help them buy that property. And that's a great client to have. However, if they decide, listen, I'm willing to move into the property, live there for a year and then convert that property to a rental. Now you're taking a client that had one 20% down payment and they're now able to buy four rental properties over four years by buying a property, moving in, living there for a year, taking their next 5% down, buying the next property a year later, moving in, living there for a year, 
the next property with 5% down. So now you've got a client who over a four-year period may have bought one property and be part of the way to saving their next 20% down payment to a client that has bought four properties with you over four years. And you've helped them acquire a nice portfolio of really good single family home, usually sometimes duplex, triplex, or fourplex for the first one or two. But most of the time it's single family homes that they're, they're properties that are so nice because they're willing to live in them. So I like this strategy. I like these clients. They're great long-term clients that you can add a lot of value to. You can really help out. You can uh, help them learn a strategy. So I love working with Nomad clients. And I, I hope that you will decide to work with Nomad clients, but you can, do, you can work with whoever you want. So we'll talk more about Nomads, I'm sure, in the future because I, I really like working with those guys. So those are the Nomad guys. Then there are folks that want to do straight up options on real estate. And they are, they're willing to go usually pay a little bit of money in order to get an option to be able to buy a property, you know, a year or two or five or 10 down the road. And they are, you know, they're, they're a lot of times speculating or they've got specific plans that they're trying to do. So you could do the option strategy for those guys. Um, I, I think for a lot of real estate agents, unless you're doing big commercial deals, this kind of option strategy is probably not one most real estate agents or lenders are going to be focusing on. Uh, folks that want to do partnerships. I find the partnership one to be into, I tend to find them to be people that either are not qualified and so they they want to like be the one that goes and finds the deal and then they bring in a money partner, they bring in a loan partner, or they're really sophisticated people trying to bring you know a couple of people that they already know together to invest with them on deals. So there's sort of like a, a dichotomy, a, a kind of splitting of the group. Um, uh, partnerships attract a lot of, newbie sort of investors that they don't have the down payment resources or the, and or the credit and or the income to be able to qualify for the loans. And they think that part of what they're going to be doing is, and probably because they've learned this somewhere online or some podcasts or something like that, where they want to go, um, you know, kind of get the strategy that they can be the person who does the deal finding, and then they go find their money partner, they go find their loan partner, and they kind of put the three of them together and they kind of do their deal. And so, Yes, I think you could work with some of that group. Um, that is a, that's a little harder group, in my opinion, to work with. Um, you could still add a ton of value to their lives, but it's a little bit harder group to work with. And they tend to not perform as regularly. You'll have a lot of false starts. Someone who tries to do this for you know, a month or two and then gets frustrated and doesn't, and doesn't continue. But the other group, the group of people that are you know, maybe these are the ones that are already doing buy and hold with you or lease options or nomading. And now they want to add to their portfolio and they want to buy uh, bigger properties. And they've been talking to their, you know, other engineering um, kind of like associates at work and the, the engineering associates, they're not willing or able or, or desiring to go learn about all the investing stuff, but they see their other associate being successful doing it. And the other associates kind of like, quasi not this is not like officially representing but they're sort of representing the interests of their three or four other co-workers who are all going to contribute to the down payment and or co-signing on loans in order to be able to buy these larger properties those are great clients in my opinion um and so I, I think that you will find these naturally i think that it is a topic that you know we'll talk about how to attract uh real estate investor clients in the future it is a really good topic to get a wide net out there to bring new people into your sphere so that you can then kind of continue to educate them and show them the benefits of doing partnerships. But I do think you get a, a wide range of the real estate investors that are active and actually going to close deals versus the ones that are sort of just like attracted to more of the, the get rich quick 
Uh, I'll go find a deal and I'll bring in other partners, that sort of clientele as well. So there's a range, but I do think it's worth pursuing in a lot of ways. Uh, the next kind of group of real estate investors are those that are more passively investing in things like real estate investment trusts. Um, I don't really talk about these that much. If you uh, have clients that are doing those, you're probably going to a stockbroker uh, in order to buy the real estate investment trust. Although there are some private real estate investment trusts that they can get involved with, with um, I'm really not qualified to talk about because I don't really see a lot of those. Uh, then you've got the whole group of people that are really, they're not really real estate investors. They're more real estate entrepreneurs. They're the folks that are out there doing marketing, um, you know, finding deals off markets, buying properties creatively, you know, subject to, or um, you're getting owner financing or doing wrap financing. They're the guys that are sort of the, the kind of like grayer space of what real estate agents do, right? I mean, as real estate agents, a lot of times we're going and finding a seller who's interested in selling. We are representing them and their best interest to try to get the property sold for them. Or we are finding a buyer who's interested in buying a property and we're representing them and their best interest in helping them acquire a property. And we are being paid a fee, a brokerage fee, in order to help the seller or help the buyer go and you know perform whatever it is they're trying to do, whether they're selling or buying. Real estate entrepreneurs, they operate sort of in this gray space where they go find a seller, but instead of actually representing the seller in the seller's best interest, they go take an ownership interest. Either they buy the property directly or they um, put a contract on the property and then they go and you know, this is more wholesaling, but then they go and they try to find a or match a uh, buyer for that particular contract or their deal. So real estate entrepreneurship is their sort of working a similar but more gray space role as real estate agent. They're going out there and acquiring deals directly themselves, directly to the seller. They're trying to find for sale by owners, whether it's a, a hidden for sale by owner that they're marketing and finding, or it's literally a for sale by owner that is marketing themselves as a, hey, listen, I'll sell my property, but I don't want to use an agent. And then they're going acquiring those deals or tying up those deals and then liquidating these deals by finding the buyers to then go into properties. And sometimes it's not a buyer, sometimes it's a tenant, or sometimes it's a combination of tenant buyer who is leasing the property and then eventually buying the property from them. So kind of like that real estate entrepreneurship gray area um, part of it. So all the guys that are doing like looking for motivated sellers or marketing to find stuff like that, that's more the real estate entrepreneurship crowd, in my opinion. Uh, and then creative financing, that's sort of a, an extension of this real estate entrepreneurship. Those are guys that are looking to do owner financing or lease options or wrap financing or subject to or agreement for deed or contract for deed, installment land contracts. They're the folks that are, they're unable or unwilling. Sometimes it's unable, sometimes it's unwilling, sometimes it's both um, to go and get traditional financing. And so they want you to go reach out to sellers and say, hey, would you consider you know, doing a seller finance, you're carrying back on this deal. And I think during certain market cycles, these are not the worst clients to have. Um, in general, I would say it's better to have like a really high performing one that you know closes on just about everything you bring them versus having, you know, 10 people that are not really closing on anything because they're only looking for like the most obscure grand slam home run of a deal, you know, just from a practical standpoint, I'd rather have the guy that's close on a lot of stuff with you um, and forming really good relationships and helping them. But these creative financing folks are more looking for those types of transactions. And they tend to be in general, um, a lot of work for what can sometimes be no or little pay. Um, I, there's lots of exceptions to that, but I think that's historically been what I've seen. 
does that mean, uh, we'll talk about this in the future, I'm sure, but does that mean you don't teach classes on creative financing? No, because I think you find that if you teach creative financing, you expand the knowledge of your other investors so that if they see a deal like this, they know how to handle it. And it's, there's nothing wrong with them picking up the occasional deal using creative, creative financing. Uh, and you also attract new people, new real estate investors that they're wanting to learn about creative financing. They're wanting to do creative financing. And they sometimes get in on creative financing, but then eventually say, you know, I'm not finding a lot of creative financing doing my own effort, my own marketing, you know, structuring things the way I want to, but I really do like this real estate stuff and this real estate investing. And so I want to go also do house hacking or nomad in parallel. And now you are now my agent who can help me or my lender who can help me buy those properties more traditionally. And so I still think you get clients by adding value and helping people do the creative financing. Um, but I think, you trying to get paid for doing some of the creative finance stuff is going to be hard. It's going to be much harder to do. Now, if you're like an accountant or you're a hard money lender or you know something like that, then teaching creative financing is a great strategy to acquire those types of clients because they are much more in your wheelhouse. Okay, so just realize that. Uh, another type of real estate investor are those that are searching to do more short-term rentals. You know, the real estate buy and hold business it's a, it's a business, right? I mean, they're acquiring properties, they're managing the property itself, they're managing their property manager, or they're doing the property management themselves, they're finding tenants, they're managing the tenants, they're, you know, doing uh, maintenance or overseeing the maintenance on the properties, they're kind of like doing turnovers and coordinating all that stuff. It, the It's actual business of operating rental properties, that's what you're doing. Short-term rentals is sort of like taking that to the next level, where it's much more active, uh, because instead of finding a tenant once every year or two years or three years, if you're doing that, you know, sometimes it's a little shorter if you have some evictions and some you know, kind of bad luck or something. But uh, short-term rentals, a lot of times you're doing that much more actively. You're actively running this business and making sure the property is maintained and the maintenance is being done and the, the house cleanup is being done. Uh, but it can be a really good extra source of income for your real estate investors. And so it could be a really good client for you, especially if they're trying to rapidly acquire things and kind of build their portfolio of short-term rentals in your marketplace. So those could be good clients to cater to, to work with. Uh, syndications. These are clients that are um, going out and they're trying to acquire a deal and then syndicate out their deal to other people. They're trying to uh, sell shares or bring in other partners to kind of come in and help invest with them to do that. Um, it's sort of like related to partnerships uh, in, in that way. Uh, tax liens or tax deeds. So in some markets you can buy, um, when, when someone doesn't pay their county property taxes, in some places you can go and pay the county taxes on behalf of the seller, on behalf of the property owner, really, it's not really a seller. On, on behalf of the property owner, and then you can either collect some type of fee. And a lot of times it's interest that you're getting on the thing. And if they don't pay over a certain period of time, eventually in some markets, you can actually foreclose on your tax lien and get possession of the property. It's sort of like a really rare, unusual thing. And so just realizing that there are some investors that that's what they're trying to do. Not sure this would be a good thing for most people serving real estate investors to go after as sort of a client acquisition, but you should be aware that it exists and kind of that's what some people are doing. And then the last group is wholesaling. There are some real estate investors where they are trying to go out and find sellers who are interested in selling their properties. In most cases, these guys are trying to find deeply discounted properties that they could sell to another real estate investor. So they're trying to go find these really deeply discounted, very distressed properties or distressed sellers of some sort. And they're trying to uh, tie up the property with a contract for themselves 
that is also assignable so that they can assign it to another investor that they go and find and get a fee for doing that. If it sounds like real estate brokerage, it's because it feels like real estate brokerage to me, right? As a real estate broker, we go out there, we find a seller. We usually have some paperwork to agree to allow us to market the property, to get it for sale for them, listing agreement, listing contract. And then we take the property that we're marketing and we go advertise it out to all the different real estate agents or to buyers directly. And we have a buyer come in, sometimes with another agent who we're willing to share our commission with. And they come in and we actually help the seller close the deal and we help the buyer actually buy the property. And we're getting paid a fee for helping broker that transaction. Well, wholesalers are trying to do this usually without a real estate license. And so the way in a lot of markets to do this without a real estate license is instead of you brokering the transaction, which would require a license, they're saying, I'm a principal to the transaction. I'm going and getting a contract with the seller. So now I am actually an, an a vested interest. I have a vested interest in the property through this contract I have. Now I'm trying to sell my personal property, the contract I have to another buyer in exchange for a fee. Well, then that buyer will close directly with the seller and I'm not brokering the transaction. I don't represent the seller. I don't represent the buyer. I'm representing myself in the deal as a wholesaler and I'm trying to do the deal. And you might think to yourself, hey, wholesalers don't seem like good clients to have. And I think that they are hard to serve if you are trying to be the broker who's getting paid with them wholesaling inside the MLS. But there are some wholesalers who want to go outside the MLS. They want to do their own marketing, whether that's you know manual labor type marketing, um, you know what I would call a lazy, I'm sorry, poor methods of marketing where you're unwilling to spend money, but you're willing to invest your time to do it. Or they're willing to spend some money and do lazy marketing where they want the sellers to come to them. They're spending money doing direct mail or signs or postcards or um, you know pay-per-click or whatever they're doing there. And they're trying to find the sellers. Now, why would you as a you know, real estate agent who wants to serve real estate investors, do any type of catering whatsoever to wholesalers. Well, the wholesalers, they're looking for deeply discounted deals. But what do they do with a seller who contacts them on their marketing? And it's like, you know, I want retail for this. And the wholesaler's like, I can't make money if you want, you know, full price. You want full retail value on this. I don't have enough spread to go sell it to an investor who's looking for a discount and to be able to pay my fee. Well, you could work out some type of arrangement with the wholesaler where if you're providing them some other type of value where they might be inclined to say, hey, this is a seller who I couldn't come to an agreement with, you know, as long as you carve me out, do an exception to them if case they come back and they work out a deal with the seller three months later or something like that, where you actually get to work with the seller and maybe help them sell the property um, and the wholesaler you know, get something in exchange for that, whatever, we're talking about ways to add value to investors here later. But that's the idea is that, you know, if you, if you think about the typical wholesaler, they may be closing about 10% of the deals that they go out on. So for every 10 sellers they meet with, they may find one deal. What are they doing with the other nine? Those could be potential listing clients for you. And so I think having some wholesalers and catering to wholesalers in some way, and we'll talk about what that looks like in detail, but that could be a really good strategy for you to do that. All right. I think I've gone about the limit of time that I was hoping to go. I hope this was helpful for you to just understand kind of like the playing field of who different types of real estate investors are. And we're going to go into a lot more detail as to how we can add value to the lives of all of these different people, some of them a lot more than others. And some of them we're going to focus on catering really to buy and hold or nomad or wholesalers or short-term rental people. And you'll see how we do this. And then ideally you will attract some clients where 
a certain percentage of them, not all of them, but a certain percentage of them will say, look, I really do appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, I am going to go buy a property in the MLS. I would like to use you, or I've got this other property that I got for sale. I'm going to list it with an agent. I'd like to list it with you. Thank you for you know, providing such value for us as real estate investors. And how can I, you know, I'd like to get back or help you with that. And we kind of like have a, an exchange of value where you're providing tons of value and resources and tools and being super helpful. And then eventually some of them, not all of them, but some of them will come back and they will um, utilize your services, whether that's doing loans with you or real estate brokerage, or, you know, if you're an accountant doing tax returns or doing consulting about, you know, LLCs or whatever you decide to do. If you want to focus on real estate investors, we'll talk about different ways to add value. That's all I got for you. I hope you enjoyed the class. Stay tuned. If you miss any of these live, you can definitely watch the recordings. Uh, go to servingrealestateinvestors.com to get on the Substack, And I will also publish these to the podcast. It may take a little while for us to get the podcast up and out syndicated. We'll talk about how to set up a podcast because it's one of the things I think would be helpful for you to do if you're serving real estate investors in your local market as well. That's all I got. This has been James Orr. Have a great day. Bye-bye for now.